Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, listeners. It's Lila. I'm here to say that we're working on some great stuff for you. So this week, we've decided to bring you one of our favorite episodes. It's a conversation with the actor Michael Patrick Thornton. Michael is on Broadway right now in A Doll's House alongside Jessica Chastain, and I just saw it, and it's excellent. And seeing him on stage reminded me of this wonderful conversation that we had when he was here. So here it is. Next week, we'll be back, and we're talking all about tequila. But in the meantime, we hope you enjoy. When the actor Michael Patrick Thornton was in middle school, he saw the play that made him fall in love with theater. Uh, is it permissible to swear on this podcast? Sure. Okay, so uh, my first production that I saw, um, we were bust in, I think I was in 7th or 8th grade, and it was Twelfth Night, and the first line of Twelfth Night, if I remember correctly, is the person comes out and says, if music be the food of love, play on. Mm-hmm. And the actor came out, and it was like 10 in the morning, it was a school show, you know, and he said, if food, oh, fuck. <laughs> and they blacked out on him. And I was like, what just happened, you know? <laughs> And then lights came slowly back up, sort of music. And I think in that moment, like the sacred, the poetic, <laughs> and the profane were married, you yeah. know, for me. It was yeah. hilarious. It was vulgar. It was wrong. An accident was turned into an opportunity. And I think that was kind of the seed, you know? Yeah. That's Michael talking to me in our studio in New York. Michael actually lives in Chicago, where he has his own theater, The Gift. You may also know him from the show Private Practice. He played Dr. Gabriel Fife. He was also in Madam Secretary and has been in a lot of other TV shows. For 15 weeks this spring, Michael is in New York. He's in a new production of Macbeth on Broadway, alongside Daniel Craig and Ruth Negga. But Michael's relationship to Shakespeare goes way back, and it runs deep. Shakespeare practically saved Michael's life. It definitely saved his career. And I remember reading Shakespeare in grammar school and like, you know, not understanding what the hell they were talking about. But it was it was just so attractive that, well, I know this is English. I know those words, but mm-hmm. the arrangement of them, it seems like a code to break, you know, right. um, and that was attractive. And then I dropped out of the University of Iowa and kind of a Chicago theater rite of passage was there is a theater company called the Ivanhoe Theater with a very bizarre man who ran it. Um, and it was daytime Shakespeare, you know, miserable early mornings but you know we did Midsummer Night's Dream and we did Romeo and Juliet and then uh I got sick in in 2003 um I had two spinal strokes Mm -hmm. um because the first one was so much fun I figured why not do another one and uh in speech therapy I had suggested that we do some Shakespeare soliloquies and um sonnets Mm. and that's kind of how I put my voice back together and breathing back together Today, I talk with Michael about Shakespeare, about performing Macbeth during a COVID spike, about what his career has been like since he recovered. Michael is currently the only actor on Broadway using a wheelchair, and he has thoughts on that. Then, we visit one of the UK's most prolific forensic artists, 
You know, one of those people that police bring in to sketch criminals' faces based on how witnesses remember them. She's not what you might imagine a top crime solver to be. She's sweet and she's warm. And she starts by giving the witness a jar of strawberry jam. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. I went to see the new Macbeth on Broadway. It's directed by Sam Gold. And in some ways, this is a Shakespeare production for Shakespeare lovers. Gold is a Shakespeare guy. He's done King Lear, he's done Hamlet, Othello. But the staging in this one is really contemporary. When you walk into the theater, the three witches are just hanging out on stage in a kitchen, cooking and listening to podcasts. Michael, welcome. It's so nice to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. So you are currently in Macbeth on Broadway, a very buzzy Broadway show. Can you tell me a little bit about the production and the roles you play? Sure. I play uh, Lennox, who is a thane, a lord, and murderer number two, which is, uh, you know, the, the two reasons you go to see Macbeth, of course, for those two characters. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is a very stripped down, sort of punk, rockish, um, bare bones, naked aesthetic approach to it. Not a lot of adorned set design or costume design, but very intentional, very minimalist, mm-hmm. um, and uh, a real lightning rod of conversation as far as I can tell. So you open the show, and it plays a little with how we see Macbeth, the performance. And can we talk about that, or is that a spoiler? No. I mean, the only reason that exists is because of COVID. Mm. So I got COVID right before we opened, as did several of our cast members. Yeah. To such a degree that all our understudies were in, and the only way the show could continue that evening was if the director stepped in and took my place. Right. So Tony Award winner Sam Gold uh, goes in for me, and just as a way to manage expectations, gave this little preamble on a microphone of, hey, this is what you can expect. I'm stepping in for Mike. Um, here's a little bit about the play. And sort of blundered into a great device to mm-hmm. sort of demystify the play, demystify Broadway in a way, um, bring us back to a sense of maybe how it m- might have been to have been in attendance at the Globe back in the day when people were just kind of carrying on and laughing and having a beer and it wasn't so precious, you know? Yeah. But public address is something I've done a lot of my career. I've done a lot of one-person shows. I love creating a relationship with the audience. It's mm-hmm. very scary. It feels like... Yeah, working without a net. Um, and it just seems very humane in a way and kind of the heart of what theater is. Yeah. Um, and I love it. You know, it, it's, it's one of my favorite parts of the play. So Michael opens the show, and he's a pretty prominent figure throughout it. He sort of reminded me of a gentle guide, like a friend weaving in and out. That's partially because of this first moment where he literally welcomes the audience into the theater. And it's also because he delivers Shakespeare's lines in a really conversational way. That way where you easily forget they were written 500 years ago. The story of how Michael got so familiar with Shakespeare, how Shakespeare practically became part of him, goes back to a life-threatening incident from his early 20s. Can you tell us what happened? I wish I could. Um, A spinal stroke is a medically idiopathic event. It's a Dr. House episode. Mm. Um... And no one really knows why. It's very rare. The The short version of it was I had a pain in my neck on St. Patrick's Day at night. Um, 
and within mm, 30 minutes was on life support. Mm. Um, it was a horrific pain, felt like a football team wearing high heels was standing on my neck. And mm. then um, I was in a medically induced coma for five days. I remember it. I remember the sound of the ventilator um, and I couldn't move anything. Uh, I remember people talking in my room. I woke up to a priest giving me my last rites. Oh my God. Uh, I sort of did the sacraments in the wrong order. Um, and then uh, was extubated and things were waking up. I got transferred downtown to recuperate. And then, you know, out of nowhere, another one happened. Michael was 23. He had just finished a training program at the Steppenwolf Theater, one of Chicago's most prominent. He'd just gotten his union card as an actor. His career was on the up. And now... Suddenly, he couldn't move the lower half of his body. He could speak, but he couldn't project or control his breathing. He had to relearn how to function in the world, and he had to learn how to act all over again. You said that one of the forms of restorative therapy was using Shakespeare. What did that involve? Laura Hinkis Molinero was the speech therapist, and uh, we would start small. You know, she would start uh, a couple feet away from me and see if I could make it through a line, you know? Mm. And my diaphragm didn't know when it was depleted of oxygen because my spinal cord wasn't in conversation with it. So I would start a sentence and then kind of get a third of the way through and kind of black out, mm. you know? And she just kind of kept moving the goalpost. You know, she would sit farther away from me. And then we went into their small auditorium that they used for kind of presentations. And then we went into... Forget what theater it might have been Steppenwolf or um, some theater gave us access to their space on an off day, and we just kind of kept widening the aperture mm. until I was able to fill a room. You know, what worked? Like, what were the things that worked? What was it about Shakespeare that worked? Do you think that it was the rhythm of it? Was it like the iambic pentameter that helped with breathing, or was it just the fact that you were? D doing theater and that that it's a great question I, I i never considered that the built-in sort of tempo and rhythm of shakespeare would have contributed to a little bit of a internal marshalling of breath and um i don't know um mm. and i i simply remember being like you're going to have to kill me to prevent me from doing this mm. like one way or the other i'm getting back to acting and i think that's that was an extraordinary gift because I think um, the kind of hidden opportunity in clawing your way back from death and learning how to speak and talk again is that I had to confirm for me that it was acting that was kind of the thread that I was pulling on to, to find my way out. You know, it wasn't doing it for my family. It wasn't doing it for, oh, I'd like to have kids someday and I need to da -da -da -da, be a little more independent. Mm -hmm. uh, it was, I need to act again. Um, I don't know why it was Shakespeare, you know. I don't remember if it was Laura's suggestion or mine even. But it was a, a hell of a, of a breadcrumb to follow uh, out of hell. Michael remembers this one scene in particular that he used to practice. It's from Othello, but the lines are from the villain Iago. Iago is trying to endear himself to the audience. He's trying to let them know that even though he's about to do a lot of bad stuff, his motives are not all bad. He says, for when my outward action doth complement the native act and figure of my heart, uh, 
in compliment extern, tis not long after, but I will wear my heart upon my sleeve for Dawes to peck at. I am not what I am. And I remember just being like, okay, today I can't move my left arm. Uh, that's who I am today. And then maybe tomorrow I'll be this other person who can push myself down a hallway. It, it just was a kind of a comforting line of things are healing. It's slow. It's glacial. Mm. But, um, you know, who you are today is not who you're going to be tomorrow. Eventually, Michael could control his voice again. He could move comfortably in a wheelchair, which is how he appears on stage today. But he was re-entering acting in a very different place. This world was not exactly welcoming to an actor with a disability. It was like this double life or this weird Groundhog Day thing where I would go back to these offices where I had auditioned when I was, you know, non-disabled. And now all of a sudden it's like, well, you can't enter through the front door. You got to go through the back in this like completely like bombed out looking alley mm. and get wheeled up this rusted out ramp and then wait for like the freight elevator, which like reeks of spilled pop and like rotted produce. Okay. Um, and that was demoralizing. And I couldn't get seen for anything. It was like, have you been injured at work commercials? You know, right. and the only company besides my theater company, besides my own, the gift that would employ me as an actor was uh, Steppenwolf. But eventually, with the help of a casting producer friend, he got an audition. It was for Private Practice, a wildly popular spinoff of Grey's Anatomy run by Shonda Rhimes. He played a recurring character, a doctor who happened to use a wheelchair, and it shifted the trajectory of Michael's career. Now he's on TV, he's on Broadway, he has his own theater. A few years ago, Michael played Richard III there, who's a character that's often interpreted to have a disability. I asked him about it. So Richard III is a history of being played um, as a disabled character. What? <laughs> I say to audience. To I would assume all the actors playing him were disabled as well, right? Wait, what? They were? <laughs> Do you mean to tell me that, that non-disabled actors play disabled characters <laughs> in the entertainment industry? Shocking, I'm sure. I'm sure <laughs> but what does that do to the morale of disabled audience members who watch and are waiting to see themselves represented? Well, that's why Surely your it. facts are wrong. <laughs> this is the Financial Times. You should uh, do your research better. <laughs> um, yeah, how do you feel about that? You know, I think, look, we should live in a world where people could play, you know, many different things, but we don't. Right. And, you know, d disability is the, the largest minority in the world and the least represented. Yeah. And that's weird. Um, it's very strange, and we should ask ourselves why that is. And we should ask ourselves why we're interested in disabled stories where at the end the person can walk again. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have been, I have tried to be very judicious. Sometimes you need to pay the rent. But I've tried to be judicious in my career to play characters where for the most part, the wheelchair is not part and parcel of a plot device. Mm -hmm. It's not a dramaturgical um, thing that needs to be solved. It's there. It's just there, you know? Um, and the more I can force audiences into a sort of contextless crossroad where they have to either spend time being like, well, I wonder what that's about, or just give that up yeah. and go along for the ride— I think a beautiful thing happens when they choose the second mm -hmm. option, which is that they accept you as a human being, you know, and that's kind of all we're asking for. 
I, it has changed. The industry has changed a lot in in the time that I've been working. Um, but it is it is woefully uh, underrepresented. It's yeah. really a crime, you know. Yeah. How do you see it changing? I mean, what do you envision? I mean, I I think I, I envision seeing disabled artists working in front of him and behind the camera on TV sets. I I see stories where <laughs> disabled actors are you know part of the world and they don't have to be objectified or turn into a uh, a feel-good trope you know like i'm i'm not here to inspire you you know like i know my story is kind of inspiring and weird and like interesting and i get all that but you know i have no interest in being known as like he's a great disabled actor you know it's like me saying like you're a great interlocutor with blue rings on right now (laughs) you know what i mean it's like it shouldn't mean anything yeah you know um but I think the fact that that the scale is so disproportionately tipped and we're so disproportionately underrepresented speaks more about the culture that is keeping us out of the doors than we who are trying to get into them, you know. I have to say, watching you, in, I mean, not only was the fact that you were in a wheelchair, it really felt like it didn't matter. It, yeah. There wasn't like a, I wonder why. It kind of just didn't matter at all. Yeah. But also, I just really enjoyed when you were on stage. Like, you speak very naturally. Like, you speak the language of Shakespeare very naturally. It feels, like, totally conversational and part of you and yeah. sort of modern. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thanks. I, it, you know, the, the theater company, of which I'm an ensemble member, The Gift, you know, we're in a very sort of working class, cops and firemen, you know, neighborhood and we're also dorks, like we love Shakespeare and we love difficult language. But there's a great bullshit indicator that our audiences have. They feel like they're being talked down to, right? Mm-hmm. And so we sort of need to have needed to make some of these productions that are verbally intricate and Baroque feel like people hanging out in a bar, you know, talking. Yeah. It's this really challenging and difficult magic trick where it involves a shit ton of preparation. Mm-hmm. Like... You know, I'm geeking out of like looking up the definitions, the connotations and the denotations of words that are a little weird, you know. It's also image play. It's like, you know, he has a word that does not make sense for you and I to use like right now, you know. (laughs) But I have to kind of make you see something else, you know. And Oh, interesting. Yeah. Like what? Um, There's a line in Macbeth that's really weird where where I say, uh, who then shall blame his pestered senses to recoil and start? When all that is within him does condemn itself for being there. And recoil and start is weird to me. Mm. It, that's not quite immediately understandable in terms of the sense of the line. The sense of the line is, who among you is going to think a dude like this can like change himself? Mm. You know what I mean? And kind of turn a new leaf over, you know? And so that's kind of what you're thinking when you say recoil and start. You're kind of like, he can change himself. You know? Right. And so it's a little bit of manipulation with it's telepathic manipulation, you know? So, I mean, that's what I love about it. And so thank you for saying it sounds conversational because Mm -hmm. it's, it's a hard trick to pull off. It looks easy, which most hard things do. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Michael, thank you so much. Yeah, of course.
You know you're a good forensic artist when even the suspect likes your drawing. The policeman uh, happened to have um, a copy of my drawing in his pocket and pulled it out and um, showed him. And he said, oh, that's very good, isn't it? Can I have a copy for me mum? The... The criminal. That's Melissa Dring. She's 78 years old, and she's been helping the British police catch perpetrators of horrible crimes for 35 years. She's really good at it. And the way she's able to draw faces based on someone else's description is a little different than how you might expect. Here she is telling journalist Will Coldwell how she starts when she meets a crime victim. First, we just sit and chat for a bit, and... um, this is my police bag. Mm. A whole lot of creatures come out. Is that for um, anybody? Any truck way. drivers. Yeah. Not just little girls, darling. Yeah, yeah. Yes. But people make a beeline for dogs and tigers. Um, oh, jar of homemade jam. And right. what's the jam for? Oh, because. I just want to arrive with a little present, okay. and it, and not. It's not like a celebratory thing, so not flowers or chocolate. I had to really think about it. What was a real mumsy thing to take? This isn't something I've ever thought about. But how would you draw someone based on a vague description? You could ask what kind of nose and eyes the person had, but it turns out people are really bad at remembering nose and eye shapes, let alone describing them. Police sometimes use forensic kits that let you assemble a face from existing types of noses and eyes. But even having those shapes in front of you doesn't make you remember them better. Melissa's approach is deeply interpersonal. Her jam, her stuffed animals, they're all about making people comfortable. And that's the first step in coaxing their memory out of their heads and then onto her page. Because think about it. She's asking them to face a terrible moment, often the worst in their lives, and tell her about it. Well, the first question would be sort of, would you know him if you saw him again? Mm. What sort of job could you imagine him doing? Sort of, again, mm. indoor or outdoor? Um, what sort of level of education would he be kind to animals? And does he remember his mum's birthday and send her a car? All these sort of things. Ridiculous. All right, who washes his socks? All these questions are my way of getting them to think about that person. And while they're thinking about, well, I wonder who does wash his socks, um, more of the physical memory that I've got at the end of the afternoon to draw comes back. Will recently wrote a great profile of Melissa for FT Weekend magazine. I put the piece in the show notes. Hi, Will. Welcome to the show. Hi. He first saw Melissa in a true crime documentary on Netflix called The Hunt for Bible John about a serial killer in Scotland. Melissa was in it. And when Will Googled her, he also realized that she worked on a ton of other high-profile cases, including the 2007 case of Madeline McCann. He gave her a call and she agreed to talk. So he drove up to her house in Northampton. She's a very kind of warm and welcoming person as soon as I kind of was 
welcomed in she handed me a pair of red slippers to put on um <laughs> she baked some homemade bread and, and some soup for me for lunch you know she oh. she definitely took me in <laughs> uh, and was very hospitable which i i came to realize was a kind of character trait that serves a forensic artist very well since you need to kind of make someone feel enough at ease that they're willing to kind of share a, a potentially very traumatic experience and for them their memory to loosen up I, I think you need to have someone feeling relaxed. Will can you walk us through how she does it? It struck me that like memory is a mysterious thing like it's something that we are kind of chasing. I would imagine that it's a very psychological thing to get somebody into a place where they can remember things that maybe they didn't think they did. Yeah, completely. And, you know, again, that that's down to the skill of the interviewer or, you know, in Melissa's case, the skill of the, the artist to kind of nurture a kind of environment where someone can kind of draw out these memories. And she follows um, the cognitive interview technique which is was taught to her at the FBI academy and is is quite a kind of standardized structure for interviewing witnesses and and you know it kind of does follow that sort of process of creating a bit of a rapport with the, with the witness and then talking around it in certain ways and you know before you get to the more granular details and that's been kind of proven to be quite an effective way to draw out memories from someone and and that's that's used in mm. in policing quite widely i believe but obviously with there's another layer to it which is then you have to kind of accurately draw that and then there's the skill of the artist to translate those words into something visual how does melissa know that she's done a good job with the drawing itself well when she you know when she shows it to the witness and sees how they they react because at the end of the process, she has a kind of a witness statement which needs to be signed. But, you know, she she told me that people often react very strongly to it, especially if they, you know, if people find themselves staring back at the person that attacked them. Yeah. Did she talk about that moment? Like what kinds of reactions? Yeah. I mean, she told me that people kind of, uh, you know, flush bright red, uh, you know, tear up she said one person had to kind of go and be sick um because they felt so mm. i guess traumatized by by seeing that 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 image um which yeah. is quite you know i guess I, I i can understand that there aren't many forensic artists in the uk and these days technology does it almost as well in some cases better in 2007 a new system came to market called evofit which uses ai People are shown a series of entire faces, not pieces and parts, and then they choose faces that look like the suspect. Those get combined to create a composite face. The hit rate for EvoFit has gotten to about 60%. That's really high. It's actually higher than forensic artists. But Will says that does not mean that Melissa's job will go extinct. More recently, in the last kind of decade or so, there have been new computerized versions of uh, these identification tools, which which have kind of proved to be more effective than artists. But that isn't to say that they always will be because there's a freedom and flexibility to, you know, an artist drawing something which can't always be recreated by a computer. 
The one thing that really separates a forensic artist from a computer program is that a forensic artist is human. It struck me that it was such compassionate work. I didn't really think of it as that, but of course. Yeah, completely. I I hadn't thought about that as well. I kind of thought of it as a more kind of technical process. I hadn't thought so much about that kind of emotional element to it. And I think, you know, it's Melissa told me she has to kind of, sometimes it's difficult for her to kind of keep it together. It's very difficult to hear these experiences of of crime victims um, because you know you wouldn't get a forensic artist to kind of sketch a shoplifter or you know someone that's Mm -hmm. smashed someone's car window in you you know these are these are serious crimes these are these are rapes these are murders abductions kind of quite violent Mm -hmm. offenses and um you know it's a very kind of sensitive process I think to kind of um to go through Yeah, I would imagine that it's difficult not to bring that home. And I'm curious if you got the sense of how she handled that. How did she talk about whether she was, how she brought her work home, how she dealt with going into these moments of trauma with people? Yeah, I mean, I got a strong sense from Melissa that she takes her sense of duty quite seriously and um, has a kind of slightly you know, um, English, you know, emotional restraint to her too. Here's how Melissa responded to whether she feels any secondary trauma. Does it kind of, Mm. have you ever found it difficult kind of hearing these things from people? Is it like, what's the kind of, has there ever been a, has there been a kind of emotional impact on yourself having to kind of absorb? No, you have to keep it separate. Yeah. So you, you, you've always been able to kind of do those interviews and kind of mm. leave it at the door. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I'll go home and feel upset, probably, especially if it's somebody young. Yeah. Mm. But that's what I mean, like, do mm. they kind of stay with you for a while? Mm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Mm. And is that difficult then? Or do you see it as sort of part of the it's just part emotional of it. duty, I It is yeah. part of it, I think so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. For Will, hearing Melissa's story changed how he thinks about memory. Will, did writing this piece make you look at faces differently? Oh, yeah, completely. I'm actually quite, quite um, bad at recognising <laughs> faces. Um, I guess I found myself thinking about the difference between kind of recognition and and recall and how we kind of Mm. take for granted that we recognize people when we see them and and we're very good at doing that um for for the most part but we are very very bad at recalling things as well i found it interesting this kind of tension between a really instinctive um response we have that our brain kind of does without us even trying and then this kind of very complicated muddy um space of of memory and and how we kind of extract things from it well i feel like i will every face i see for the next two weeks i'll be (laughs) i'll be trying to remember um thank you so much this was fascinating thanks for having me
That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. Please do follow FT Weekend Podcast and leave us a review or maybe tell two friends about it or share it on your Twitter or your Instagram story. If you like listening, that is the best way you can support us. It really helps people find the show. You can email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. We're on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. You can see photos of Michael Patrick Thornton in our studio and photos of Melissa and her sketches on my Instagram. I'm Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Samantha Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer, and Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Please take care, and we'll find each other again next week.